and thanks for tuning in to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. Breast Cancer Action is not your average breast cancer organization, and this is not your average podcast. We're people-powered and we're fiercely independent, radical and compassionate. We never shy away from the hard truths. We bring you the facts and we tell it like it is about breast cancer and what you can do about it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I am Jayla Burton, Program Manager at Breast Cancer Action, and I'll be your host. Today's podcast will be a tad different from our usual, as I'll be joined by four different guests to discuss racial, ethnic, and cultural differences in navigating breast cancer and advocacy. Through my work at BCA, I've learned the history and witnessed the emergence of new and critical issues that must be addressed to put an end to the breast cancer crisis, especially for those who have the worst outcomes. Despite advancements such as better radiation and more chemo options, a range of hormone treatments and new targeted therapies, there are still enormous disparities and striking differences in outcomes for certain people. These disparities that exist stem from a dynamic interplay of economics, power, racism, and discrimination that lead to a variety of social injustices. The idea of this podcast was born from both internal and external conversations about one political and controversial subject in breast cancer, and that is screening and mammography. As an organization that values unbiased, accessible, evidence-based information as a guiding star to making informed decisions about one's care, we believe the mainstream breast cancer movement has misled us by emphasizing screening as opposed to focusing on root causes and true prevention. The dominant narrative tells us that if we make sure that every woman gets a mammogram, fewer women will die and we can address the unacceptable inequities in survival. But we know that this isn't true. Despite widespread mammography screening, there's been a failure to dramatically reduce the number of deaths from breast cancer. And on top of that, the evidence shows significant harms, such as overdiagnosis and overtreatment, which can be amplified by comorbidities or even cause unbearable financial toxicity. Often, breast cancer screening is oversimplified. It is evident that looking at the benefits of screening also means weighing the harms. Yet, women of color are told to get mammograms with little evidence that it will decrease disparities. For most individuals, this singular function of screening is a one-sided solution to a multifaceted problem. But the truth is, that approach alone doesn't provide a full picture and keeps us from thinking critically about the systemic inequities and oppressions of historically underrepresented groups. Hyper-focusing on screening and mammography is an injustice for people of color whose health disparities often arise from institutional, psychosocial, economic, and cultural contexts. Today, I'm diving into four conversations with individuals that represent, serve, and research different experiences of Black, Asian, and Latinx people in regards to navigating breast health, advocating for solutions to address these disparities, and the actions that we can take moving forward. Let's welcome our first guest. Darcy Green is the Executive Director of Latinas Contra Cancer, who is joining us to talk about the social determinants of healthcare, the unique experiences of the Latinx community when it comes to navigating their health, and health policy efforts to improve treatment outcomes. Hi, Darcy. It's so great to have you on the show today. How are you doing? Good morning. It's great. I'm excited to be here. 
So I know that we have had the honor, um, our two organizations, of navigating a few of the same spaces when it comes to the work that we're doing in the cancer arena, which is how I became aware of your organization, Latinas Contra Cancer. And so can you give us an introduction to Latinas Contra Cancer for those who might be unfamiliar with your work? Absolutely. Latinas Contra Cancer exists to ensure just and equitable access to the healthcare system for the Latino community around issues of cancer. We were founded 17 years ago, almost 18 years ago, to address those needs in the Latino community and obstacles that we face to accessing cancer prevention, adequate cancer care, and survivor support. We have three basic programs, um, health education, bilingual health education around healthy living, active living, and also around ways to lower your risk and dispelling myths. We have patient advocacy and patient navigation programs. That's more traditional patient advocacy, um, navigating the clinic system, um, helping to advocate with medical billers and any other things that might come up that can be frustrating for anybody in the healthcare system. And then we have support services, which is our um, our Spanish language support groups. We have one English language support group, our Wig and Prosthesis Boutique, um, and we do some research projects as well. All of our work is done in English and in Spanish and in a way that is culturally appropriate. And I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't mention the two decades of community activism and public policy experience that you've brought to this movement and this work to move the needle on equitable access um, to health for the Latinx community. So could you describe your personal journey to this work and how that informs the lens of how um, you operate as an individual um, in this space? This is such a such a great question because clearly the places that we grow up in, the experiences we have as children through adulthood, and certainly the experience we have as we navigate systems shape the way we view the world. And it certainly shapes the way I show up in this space. Um, being a Latina from East San Jose, um, and when I started out, I was an activist organizer, um, organizing around quality of life issues, organizing young people and other people in my neighborhood around everything from stop signs to building youth centers. Um, and then I worked in the legislature for some time working on issues of early education and of health healthcare policy, in addition to a few other policy areas. Um, and then I spent quite some time working at Kaiser Permanente, where I staffed or I managed community and government relations. And I got to learn very um, intimately and deeply the inner workings of health insurance and the inner workings of hospital systems. Shortly after that, my dad became very ill. Um, he actually clinically died on the same night my son was born. And um, that is when I became a patient advocate. So I was able to use all of my experience and what I already knew about injustice in the healthcare system, what I already knew about injustice in our social systems um, growing up as a young person in, in this county. Um, but I, I was able to experience firsthand how difficult our healthcare system is to navigate for people who have a chronic illness or become suddenly ill or cannot advocate adequately for themselves and how difficult um, it can be to access quality care, the care that you deserve, particularly when you're sick. So I made the decision to go over into the nonprofit advocacy space. My dad is healthy and well now, but it was you know a couple of years of very intentional, concentrated patient advocacy on his behalf to make sure that he survived that incident um, and made it you know, through to the other side. So 
I came over to Latinas Contra Cancer for a couple of reasons. One, because I developed this deep passion for patient advocacy and systems change in the healthcare system um, because I know so much about it, because I know um, that these disparities do not have to exist, but also because my grandmother passed away of breast cancer. But she was served by LCC. She was actually one of the very first support groups that LCC ever held way back when, when they were founded almost 17 years ago. And I just remember as a young person witnessing her gain that compassion, community, and dignity that was provided from the services that she received from Latinas Contra Cancer. So it felt like an opportunity to, one, bring all of the experience that I had um, in the healthcare system and patient advocacy to this space, but also a way to honor her and her experience and the dignity and health access that she deserved as a Latina going through breast cancer. Thank you so much for sharing that extremely personal and intimate experience, Darcy, about the experience that you've had um, with your family and how it pertains to um, health complications and breast cancer specifically. One of the things that I've come to know in this work is that navigating breast cancer and any diagnosis is extremely personal and navigating a complex healthcare system is also hard for anyone, um, but especially can be hard for individuals that the systems are not made for. Um, so when it comes to breast cancer research, there's evidence that shows challenges for Latina women that are facing and receiving care, um, including the lack of cultural appropriate support during the decision-making process and delayed connection to essential resources for treatment. And studies also have shown that Latinas approach treatment decision-making differently than other cultural groups, for example, are more likely to defer to clinicians when it comes time to make these decisions. Um, so through your work with cancer education, navigation, and support, are you able to speak about those barriers or any other barriers that can exist for Latinx women um, to access and receive care when it comes to breast cancer and what the impact of those barriers may be? The women that we serve at Latinas Contra Cancer, um, for the most part, are low-income most are monolingual Spanish-speaking or Spanish is their preferred language of communication. Many are undocumented, and many are also navigating socioeconomic factors that make prioritizing their breast health or prioritizing health in general difficult, particularly in this last year and a half as we've all been navigating the pandemic and the impacts of the shelter in place. I think it's important to first frame that question um, or frame this discussion from the viewpoint we take at Latinas Contra Cancer. And that is that our clients have what would traditionally be seen as barriers, right? Language barriers, cultural barriers, socioeconomic barriers. Um, but the way that we view it, it is in fact the healthcare system that is inadequate. It's the healthcare system that does not adequately meet the needs of monolingual Spanish speakers, that does not adequately meet the needs of low-income women, that does not adequately meet the needs of families who are struggling to stay housed and stay fed while trying to also navigate a cancer diagnosis or while trying to also access prevention or early detection. So if we start from that angle, right, and we say these are actually assets that our clients bring with them, um, if used properly by the healthcare system, assets that they bring with them, language, culture, community, spirituality, religion, these are all cultural assets um, that can be used in order to 
meet their needs in a healthcare space. And instead, we always view them as obstacles because our healthcare system is not adequately meeting the needs of all of their patients and all of their clients. And that is the lens um, from which we look at this work. Um, and so when I think about what are some of the inadequacies that, or what are some of the barriers that the healthcare system puts up for our clients, um, definitely not taking into account the socioeconomic factors, right? Um, when treatment plans or when care plans are dispensed or are given to some of our clients and a care plan involves a nutrition plan or involves, um, you know, eliminating stress from your life or it involves a, n- a number of things and it isn't taken into account whether or not a client can actually do that, right, based on their socioeconomic um, factors that they're navigating or other issues that come up that I think are much more rooted in discrimination and sometimes um, institutional bias or institutional racism. And that's also our clients struggling to be heard and struggling to be listened to. So yes, there definitely are clients who defer more to clinic staff and more to doctors. We all should be able to trust our medical providers. Um, They are the professionals. They spend a lot of time doing this work, but we always tell our clients, we're also the experts in our own body. And we know for Latinas and Latinx community, late detection is one of the big disparities that we face. It's one of the big injustices that we face. And we have not data behind it, but many anecdotal stories that we hear at Latinas Contra Cancer, where there's a woman who knew something was wrong and it was just so difficult to get someone to believe her or someone to examine further or to get a second opinion. Um, it was just chalked up to, oh, you don't know what you're talking about or oh, you're just, that's just bad or this is just so many of these terrible stories. Um, and then months down the road, we learned that it actually was cancer. It was a cancerous tumor. It was breast cancer. Um, and, and time was lost, um, not because the person didn't advocate for themselves, but because there were these barriers that the healthcare system set up, many of them having to do with that um, bias um, that the system has against people who um, don't speak English, um, based on how people look, based on many, many things. And then there's the other factor of when women of color advocate for themselves, how that's interpreted um, versus when white counterparts advocate for themselves and whether it's interpreted as hostile or um, whether it's interpreted as um, being problematic or uh, being a problem patient. So there's, there's so much to dig into with that research because, you know, the data is the data, but then the narrative really gets shaped by who's telling the story, right? So um, when I think of the point of view of our clients and what they experience and what, and how that results in, late detection or easy deference to doctors and medical providers, or when we hear the narrative around like a reluctancy to get any of these screenings or get the care that they need, we have to really dig deeper into why that's happening. I love how you talked about the advocacy for um, Latina women and how that may be different from the mainstream breast cancer narrative um, that we see every day. Um, I kind of want to move into a conversation about how, you know, mammographies and screenings have been perceived um, within the dominant breast cancer narrative and how those are, 
important issues because yes, it is important to know your body um, and it is important to be able to advocate for yourself. But over the past few years, mammography and screening has really been positioned as a way to eradicate these disparities when in fact, there's a lot of other issues that are below the surface um, that are really contributing to and driving these inequities. Um, So if you could speak to, I guess, how um, screening is perceived within your community um, and what are some of the other issues that you think should be elevated um, and put to as much importance as we put screening and mammography. Too often, we hear clients who have been who have heard narratives or who have the understanding that mammography is prevention right that that mammography prevents breast cancer um i'm not sure if that's a narrative that you've heard as well but that's certainly a narrative that we hear coming from our clients oh definitely every day yeah and 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 that's um frustrating for me um not i don't get frustrated with our clients it's frustrating that mammography is sold that way um, because for a couple of reasons, one, clearly it's not prevention, um, it's detection. And two, um, it also creates a lot of guilt and shame. I have found particularly for women who have skipped mammographies for whatever reason, and then find a cancer diagnosis, feel like it's all their fault because they skipped a mammogram. Um, when we know there are so many other factors that go into play, come into play. And we also know that breast cancer grows differently than other cancers and it's not linear, right? So when we think about, just as you mentioned earlier, that we have to move away from this pressure for individual behavior. It's important. Certainly, we at Latinos Contra Cancer talk a lot about eating healthy and maintaining a healthy weight and training from smoking and drinking and, and you know all of these things that we know raise your cancer risk. Um, but they're just that, right? It's not one single thing that causes breast cancer. There's all these things that might raise or lower your risk. The mammography doesn't prevent any of those things. It detects. So we we are mindful and try to steer people. And this is why our organization right now has this effort that we're launching this summer around, um, we're building out a new program area called Defensoras. It's all around patient advocacy and training people to become, Latinas in particular, to become health advocates um, through an eight-week cohort, because we understand that you can't just like individual your individual behavior way out of these health disparities. They're systems issues. So, so much weight is put on mammography um, which certainly can detect cancer, absolutely. Um, and I'm not a doctor or researcher, so I, you know, I'm not going to go into the nuts and bolts of that. But from a community health standpoint, that shouldn't absolve us from pushing just as hard on systems change. And it also, um, we shouldn't put all the eggs in that basket when there's so many other risk factors to think about that mammography doesn't prevent. And what we would like to do is help to shift that narrative or help to correct that narrative that mammography is cancer prevention. And that is the only um, procedure that matters um, within the breast cancer space. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, we we have the same view in, in that way. And I guess my next question for you is, I know that you all also have a hand in addressing some of the environmental risk factors that are associated with breast cancer. So 
for the Latinx community, can you tell me what some of the main issues are um, when it comes to environmental justice, which we see as, you know, getting to the root of the breast cancer crisis and, and really instead of implementing these solutions when it's too late, like screening and mammography, like going straight to the source and turning off the tap of whatever is causing the disease um, or what may contribute to the disease in the first place. Um, so is there anything that you all are working on in the environmental arena um, as it pertains to breast cancer and risk? Yeah, um, thank you for bringing that up. Um, you know, as an organization in, in our health education space and also in our patient advocacy space, we're we're still encouraging people to get their screenings, right? And we're still helping people with scheduling mammograms and PAPs and, and clinical breast exams and other screenings that they need, because those are still important to do when appropriate. But we spend so much more time and resource in trying to lower these other cancer risks. And when we talk about how sometimes even harmful it can be, maybe harmful is too strong of a word, but when we put so much weight on people's individual decisions and why their individual decisions may or may not have contributed to a cancer diagnosis. Um, when you can have somebody who maintains a healthy weight and who, um, you know, eats right and, um, you know, does all these things that traditionally one would say is, is health. Um, but then they live near a freeway, right. Or they work in um, a job that exposes them to cancer causing chemicals or, their children are in schools that um, have overexposure of, of a certain agent. Um, there's all of these other things that are happening in their environment that if you think of cancer risk as there's some factors that raise my cancer risk, and then there's other factors that lower my cancer risk. And it's always this teeter-tottering of risk versus, you know, increased risk versus lowering risk. Um, we have a, a, a model that we use to educate people on, and it's... Um, it's like a Loteria game, kind of a healthcare bingo. And in each square has different pieces of information and facts around that particular cancer. We also have one that's specific to environmental health and lowering your risk so that it's in English and in Spanish. And each of those squares has a different fact around environmental factors that raise your risk. We're also part of a um, national um, collaborative and, and national, um, well, I guess it's an organization that we're a member of a coalition called the Cancer Free Economy. And so we joined and signed up with them last year. And it's a it's a national group of organizations. Um, I think you all are a part of it as well, right? That's why we met. Um, but you know, just trying to be involved with um, those subgroups and that effort. I know we've um, and trying to be a voice on the issue to make sure that we're not forgetting about these environmental factors that that largely are a result of, of bad public policy or an absence of public policy protecting people um, and, and ensuring that we're creating healthy spaces. And that bad public policy or absence of public policy disproportionately impacts low-income people and people of color. Um, so trying to just be vocal about that and saying, yes, we want to make sure we're encouraging these individual behaviors. Yes, we want to make sure we're encouraging screening. Um, but if we're really going to be investing, and it, it's so interesting to me because healthcare is all about prevention, right? I mean, it's like we understand prevention um, in the healthcare space. We understand prevention in the public health space. We certainly understand prevention in the cancer space. But it's always difficult to make that leap when it comes to policy, environmental justice policy, and understanding the urgent need 
to put investment into making healthy, safe spaces for people to live, work, and play in, and how that will do more for cancer prevention than this, the funds that are spent in campaigning around mammography. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for sharing your personal story, the work that Latinas Contra Cancer is doing, and talking about these really important issues. Our next guest is Marissa Thomas, co-founder of For the Breast of Us, an organization that connects and uplifts women of color that have personal experiences with breast cancer. Marissa sheds light on some of the stigma and discrimination that exists in health systems, which prevents women of color from getting the information and care they need. Hi, Marissa. It's so great to have you on our show today. I know you recently just got back from a pretty long um, retreat that lasted for a week um, for women of color living with breast cancer. So thank you for taking the time to kind of hop back in. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. A little tired, um, but recovering. (laughs) The retreat was great. Thank you so much for having me on today. I'm excited to talk with you and let your audience get to know a little bit about myself and the work that For the Breast of Us is doing. But like you said, the retreat that we had this weekend was for about 18 of our Batty Ambassadors, which we'll talk more about. And it was amazing. Good. I saw all the pictures, so it looked lovely. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But for those who are unfamiliar, who may be unfamiliar with your organization, For the Breast of Us, um, which you are a co-founder of, can you tell us more about um, the work that you all are doing, the history of the organization, and kind of your personal journey? Sure. Uh, So like you said, I am the co-founder of For the Breast of Us. For the Breast of Us is the first inclusive online community for women of color who have been affected by breast cancer. Uh, For the Breast of Us, we just actually celebrated our two-year Founders Day on May the 14th. So we are officially two years old. We were launched back in May of 2019. And uh, one of the reasons why we developed For the Breast of Us is as myself and co-founder Jasmine Sowers When we were both diagnosed with breast cancer, we had a hard time finding imagery and stories from women of color who have been diagnosed or affected by breast cancer. We were mostly looking online, so social media, for example, is where we were trying to find most of our information. And even if you just search the hashtag breast cancer or mastectomy on any of these social platforms, nine times out of 10, most of the imagery and stories that you're going to find are from Caucasian women. And Jasmine and I knew that there were black and brown women out there who had been affected or diagnosed with breast cancer. And we just wanted to make it easier for us to be able to find those women and have them be able to share their stories from their perspective that other women of color could relate to. And so that in itself is the reason why For the Breast of Us was started. It has grown tremendously, which we are both thankful for, in that when we first started, it was more so of wanting women, giving them a platform where they can write blog stories um, anywhere from what their journey was like with being diagnosed with breast cancer, uh, dating, clean beauty, Um, Definitely wanting to hear stories from women who have metastatic breast cancer and having their voices elevated. And it has turned into so much more to where we now have um, virtual podcasts on Facebook that we call Baddies Talk Back, where we discuss topics on the third Thursday of the month. 
different topics of like the burden of being strong. We talk with some of our metastatic baddies, as we call them, uh, things of that nature. And um, we just did this retreat. We also brought in Batty Ambassadors. Um, it's our second class of Batty Ambassadors. There's about 36 women, all different ranges of their diagnosis. We even have a previvor for the first time, which a previvor is someone who has not been officially diagnosed with breast cancer, but they carry a gene mutation, which puts them at risk for being diagnosed. So they do some type of preventative surgery or preventative type of medicine with the hopes of not being diagnosed with breast cancer. And um, the women are all over the country. And it's just, it's been amazing just to see all of this be developed from for the rest of us. And I know that we will continue to grow from this point. Yeah, that sounds like amazing work that you all are, are doing. And I've, I personally had a chance to read a few of the blog posts um, on the website. And I think they're a perfect depiction of the realness of people navigating um, this very complex group of diseases. So yeah, thanks for that. Um, I kind of wanted to go in next to talk a little bit about you know, some of the disparities. I know since you work with different women that are both black and brown, like you have like a, a better idea of, you know, what are the driving factors behind these disparities. Um, one of the things that was really alarming to me was to find out that, you know, black women are more likely than other women to die from breast cancer. Um, mm -hmm. And precisely, 40% more likely to die from breast cancer than white women. And those mortality ratios get up into the 60% in specific states like Louisiana, Mississippi, or Wisconsin. And, you know, Black women have increasingly received mammographies and are slowly being diagnosed with breast cancer at the same rate as white women. However, we're still dying at a significantly higher rate. So what is your reaction to this trend and what is missing to address these gaping disparities? I will say, honestly, I'm not surprised by the numbers that came out um, just from hearing some of the stories from the women in our community. I think one of the reasons why is, you know, even though we are being diagnosed around the same time as our white counterparts, just when Black women are being diagnosed, they are being diagnosed with a more aggressive type of breast cancer or at a later stage. So even though we are, you know, getting our mammograms at the same time and going in for some of our clinic visits. It's just when women, when Black women in particular are, you know, being diagnosed, their cancer has already, you know, progressed even more. It's more aggressive. I think one of the reasons for that is, you know, what we've heard within our community is that when Black women address or bring up issues to their medical providers that they're feeling a certain way, they're definitely dismissed. We've heard that a lot of times, or they're just not heard, or they're told that they should wait. And I think that that's one of the things that needs to stop being done. I think the medical community needs to realize is that when a patient is coming to you and they are saying that they feel a certain way, and they have a concern that it needs to be addressed right then and there and not say, okay, well, let's wait three or six months and see what happens from that point. I think that's one of the biggest reasons that that is happening. I think in rural communities like Louisiana and Mississippi, where they don't necessarily have really good medical care, they aren't being able to be seen when they want or need to be seen. 
And so that's another thing that also needs to be addressed and something that we're trying to bring to the forefront to say, okay, hey, you still have women in these communities that still need great health care. How can we get that to them or who can we partner with to make sure that they have the resources that they're able to get treated when they need to get treated? You know, finance wise, there's a lot of women to where it's like, you know, do I have the funds or do I have the ability to drive two hours away to the big cancer center to get treatment? Or do I just get treatment here locally and hope that they're doing everything that I need them to do? You know, some of the bigger cancer centers should be partnering with some of these rural communities to make sure that if you can't get people to your area that needs to be served, then we need to be going out there to serve them. Yeah. And I, I really like how you talked about earlier, like the burden of being strong and kind of flip the, like in your last response, flip the nail on its head to put that responsibility on providers and the people that are, you know, giving and providing care. But for some people, I mean, I know <laughs> kind of the the strong Black women schema, you know, mm-hmm. because I am a Black woman, you know, as well. But for people that don't know what that is, um, can you kind of shed some light behind that and and how you think um, that it comes into play when, when receiving and trying to achieve better health outcomes? Right. And I would say not even just for Black women, I would just say women of color. There's also, there's just this, you know, the stigma of that we all have to be strong. And I think that that just comes from mostly of that, you know, we've always been, you know, the leader of our households and not necessarily leader financially of just, but just being like, you know, this is mom or this is the woman of the house that they're going to take care of everything. So then that carries over into other areas of your life, right? You know, when you're needing to get good care or whatever, and you come into the medical office and, you know, you're bringing up an issue that you have, it's just, you know, they automatically have this perception in their mind that, you know, you're strong and you can deal with this. It's like one of the the issues that was brought up last year about, you know, women, Black women in particular, not needing um, strong pain meds when they're complaining about pain because, you know, there's just the stigma that, you know, Black people in general, like, they have a higher pain tolerance, so they don't need. And I'm just like, where does this come from? <laughs> Why do people think this? Like, what is that? And so it carries over into other issues of your life. And then people just take that stigma and then they run with it. So I know for women within the breast cancer community, black and brown women in particular, you know, one of the things that we've been doing that we're actually doing a research project right now to figure out why women of color don't participate in clinical trials and then how can we get them. And just hearing some of the responses from the women has been eye-opening. What we're finding like within the Hispanic community, it's this thing of shame. And so you can't, you have to be strong and you don't want to go around and tell people that you're sick because then if you're sick, then that means that you're weak, right? Where we have to dispel that myth where that's not necessarily the case. And so I think it's just realizing that those barriers are in place and then how do we break them down? And that's one of the things that for the rest of us, you know, with some of the stories that are being told from the women in our community and then just working with the medical and healthcare community out there, you know, and letting them know, like, you know, let's break this down together and then let's all come together and realize that this is something that needs to be heard and addressed and let's change it. Yeah. I literally, I think I was in the same presentation. I think the presentation at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium in in December, one of the doctors reported on 
how you, medical trainees believe that Black people have fewer nerve endings, and then that makes their skin or makes our skin thicker than white skin, which I just thought was mind blowing. <laughs> that that is actually science and evidence that we have, you know, those thoughts that exist within our, our care system. Right. Or even just that where we're pain seeking, we're seeking for pain meds. You know, my sister had surgery last September and when she came out of surgery, she was complaining about how much pain she was in. And none of the nurses were listening to her and they were like, Oh, well you already got pain meds when you were in surgery, so they should still be working right now. And so I come in and, you know, she's on the verge of tears and getting ready to tell me that, you know, that she's in pain. And I'm just like, what's going on? She's just like, they won't listen to me. Like, I keep telling them I'm in pain. And it's just like, okay, so who's going to listen to me right now? Because if you're not listening to her, then you're going to listen to me. Like, if somebody is complaining about that they're in a lot of pain, that's something that we need to listen to. I don't care how much pain meds she was given while she was in surgery. Maybe those are wearing off or maybe they just weren't strong enough. I think instead of us having the stigma of like black people's skin are thicker or that they have a high pain tolerance, it's realizing that everybody, each person is individually unique and they all take something different just because I may need something a little bit stronger. doesn't necessarily mean that the next person next to me does, but let's realize that we're all different at the end of the day. Yeah. And then also realize that, you know, we are all experts on our own bodies, right? Exactly. It's like, we know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, it's, all, it's like a car, right? It's like, you know, I know how my body works. If something is off, I'm telling you this. I'm not just telling you just to, you know, just have something to say. Like, I run with this body every single day. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. This is kind of similar, Um but the concept of resiliency to overcome serious health inequities. Um, and I wanted to speak a little bit about that and how like that lens places an unnecessary and sometimes harmful burden mm-hmm. and shies away from the harsh realities of, you know, intersecting cr- traumas that have a collective impact on, you know, how, you know, we all navigate our health and specifically breast cancer. Um, and so through some of the stories that have been shared on your platform for the breast of us, have you seen there be a debunking of this concept of resiliency and I'm supposed to be happy about my diagnosis and et cetera. And can you speak a little bit to that? We do have one blog on our on our site, um, which definitely is the burden of being strong of kind of what we were just talking about. Uh, we do definitely tell the women when we're doing like some of our webinars or our baddies talk back that it's, you know, it's okay, you know, for you to not have a good day. It's okay for you to be angry or sad or mad. We just always say, just don't sit there. Just don't sit in that place. Like it's okay for you to feel all those feelings and move around that because everybody should, regardless of whatever is going through in your life, you definitely should feel those feelings, but then just don't get stuck there because when you get stuck there, then that's where, you know, you kind of fester all of that. And I think one of the good things, we actually have a private Facebook group um, called Breast Cancer Baddies, and there's over a thousand women in there who have been affected by breast cancer. And one of the things that we've noticed within that group is just the uplifting of like if somebody posts and says, you know, today I'm not having a really good day. Uh, I have to go to chemo tomorrow or I just, you know, I just finished my radiation, but I'm just not feeling okay. Or people are thinking that because I'm done with active treatment that I just shouldn't feel a certain way, but I do. And just seeing the rallying from the other women in there commenting and saying, you know, it's okay for you to feel this way. 
everybody goes through it. And, you know, even though you're done with active treatment, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're mentally done because it's still a mental toll that it takes on you. So definitely hearing that from the women and then realizing that they aren't alone, which is another one of the reasons why For the Breast of Us is founded is so other women can see that they aren't alone. I think the biggest thing about For the Breast of Us is that, you know, I can compare it to going to a a support group and you sitting there and you being either diagnosed in your 20s or 30s, and then you look around and you're either the only woman of color or there's only two other women of color that are in that group and everyone else is Caucasian and then everyone else is older and you sitting there and just feeling like, well, how are they going to be able to relate to how I'm feeling? But in For the Breast of Us, you can relate to it because you see other women who have been diagnosed in their 20s or 30s. You see other women who have the same type of experience that you had either growing up, the same type of family experience that you have, or they understand if there is a cultural experience that you have that somebody else may not be able to relate to. And that, to me, is a beautiful thing to have. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And definitely see that, you know, in, in the breast cancer space. Um, but thank you so much, Marissa. I think that pretty much wraps up all the questions that I had for you. Mm -hmm. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to add? Uh, not question wise. I just kind of want to give a shout out to, you know, some of the work that we're doing over at for the breast of us. Like we said, at the top of the show, we, uh, just came back from our first, uh, first of many, our, our batty retreat that we had. And again, we have batty ambassadors who are all over the country. They are, we are helping prepare them to navigate within their respective communities. And some of them are doing that by writing stories for our websites, um, partnering with other women who have been diagnosed as well, and just uplifting the organization. And so I would definitely say, give them a check, you know, check them out, go to our website, which is at breastofus.com and read and share some of the stories, not even just read them, but definitely share them. I think reading them yourselves is powerful, but also sharing them with your own communities would be great. And I think anybody can relate to those. Um, we also get a lot of questions from our white counterparts asking how can they help? And we call those our accomplice baddies. And we actually, <laughs> we actually have an accomplice guide on the website which we um, derived from Women of Color from Progress. And with that, we definitely just let our white counterparts know how that they can help uplift our voices. And so I would just empower you to take a look at that as well. It's, it's a pretty easy guide to just read and see. And I think that that will help anybody. Whereas, you know, it's just like, let me take a step back and just listen to what these communities have to say and figure out how I can help their stories be shared or how can I help their voices be uplifted. And, um, you know, you can follow us on any of our social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, so I would say definitely check out and take a look at that. And if you ever want to catch any of our live podcasts, we have our Baddies Talk Back, which is on the third Thursday of every month on Facebook. Our third guest is Caroline Wynn, Program Assistant at the California Healthy Nail Salon Collaborative. She's joining us to delineate some of the risk factors unique to people in the Asian community, and we'll discuss policy-level solutions to enhance primary prevention. Hi, Caroline. Thank you so much for hopping on the show with us today. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me today. 
Yeah, I'm so excited um, to dive into this conversation. I first heard about the Healthy Nail Salon Collaborative when I first joined Breast Cancer Action about two years ago, and I had the honor of attending a meeting, a member meeting actually, in Oakland a couple years back, and I was really blown away by all of the work that you all were doing. Um, so can you give our listeners a little bit of background on the collaborative and the community that you all served in your personal journey and to the organization. Yeah, so the California Healthy Nail Salon Collaborative was founded by another organization called Asian Health Services. And Asian Health Services is a small network of clinics in Oakland that provides medical services to low-income Asian patients. Um, And 16 years ago, the staff there were noticing that a large percentage of Vietnamese women who were coming in repeatedly for care happened to be nail salon workers. And they were also consistently reporting similar symptoms, um, things like skin rashes, headaches, and asthma. So the collaborative was founded in 2005 to educate and organize nail salon workers and owners to build their knowledge and and their skills on health and safety and workplace rights. And for me personally, I grew up in Little Saigon, Orange County, which is home to the largest Vietnamese population in in the U.S. And given that about 70% of manicurists in California are Vietnamese, I kind of grew up just being very like aware of this industry. Uh, many of my friends have parents or relatives in the industry, and my own mom, after she was laid off from her job during the recession in 2008, um, went to school to become a nail technician. And the school that she went to also happens to be one of the, the schools that we have done work with in the past. So it's, it's a very small world when it comes to um, this kind of work and, and this geographic area. I would say that it's not so much that I found the organization. It feels like it's more so that the organization found me. Yeah, definitely. And and I like how you kind of touched on, you know, some of the things that brought you to the organization, because um, I think those are a few of the things that keep me drawn into the work, you know, that we're doing as a whole, um, all of us together, you know, and so talking specifically about breast cancer, uh, you know, some people might be like, oh my goodness, you're, uh, you, your organization has a nail salon in it. Like, what does that have anything to do with breast cancer? Um, and I think it's important to know that, like, you know, risk factors that increase or decrease the risk of our of disease for any disease is largely determined by social conditions and where we live and where we work, and which is largely um, has something to do with our race and our ethnicity and our culture. Um, so in the work that you do, what role have you seen occupation play in the increased risk of Asian American breast cancer? Yeah, so when talking about the health concerns um, that nail salon workers face that place them at greater risk for breast cancer, the number one thing that always comes to mind is something that we call the toxic trio. And the toxic trio um, consists of three chemicals called toluene, formaldehyde, and dibutyl phthalate, or DBP. And these ingredients are commonly found in nail polish, and they can cause serious health problems, um, including uh, breast cancer, um, because they're carcinogens. And formaldehyde, as you may as you may be familiar with, is um, something that's injected into corpses to preserve them. And this is something that nail salon workers are exposed to six days a week, ten hours a day. Like, can you imagine just you know how much toxic fumes they're inhaling, you know, through their skin, through inhalation? 
I know the mainstream kind of breast cancer approach to ending the breast cancer epidemic has been hyper-focused on awareness and a lot of screening. And I think it's really important to name some of the root causes, as you've mentioned, in the nail salon space, which is the toxic trio. And I imagine there's hundreds of other chemicals um, outside of occupation that, you know, we come into contact with every day, considering there's, you know, more than 85,000 synthetic chemicals on the market. Largely, they're not regulated or under-regulated. I know one of the issues that your organization is working to address is exposure to harsh chemicals um, in consumer products and how they may increase health harms. So can you tell me a little bit about that work, um, specifically about the CAPABLE study and, and why that's so important? Yeah, so right now, um, our organization is working on a research study in partnership with uh, UC Berkeley and the California Department of Public Health, as well as two other community organizations. Um, It's called the CAPABLE study, and CAPABLE stands for Chemical and Personal Care, Asian, Black, and Latina Exposure. So basically, the study is, uh, the goal of the study is to learn about chemical exposures in cosmetics that are marketed to women of color, um, consumers of color. And the study has three phases. The first phase involved disseminating a uh, survey about personal care product use to various um, populations of women of color, as well as white women. Uh, The second phase of the study involved going to uh, beauty supply stores, big box stores, and taking inventory and and photos of products that are commonly used by women of color. And then um, those products and the, the, the labels are reviewed and they're sent to the lab to check for ingredients, especially toxic ingredients. And then the third phase of the study involves um, just educating the community about the findings and how to select safer cosmetics. And what's significant about the study is that I want to highlight some of the findings that we found in the first phase of the study, which was the community survey. So there was one question that asked, how do you choose which personal care products to buy? And the answers consisted of things like they work well for my hair, skin, body, nails. Um, They're made for women of my race. They are the right price. They smell nice, et cetera. And we found that Vietnamese respondents, so Vietnamese consumers, 66% of them selected the option that they smell nice. And only 20% of them selected the option that they select personal care products because they're labeled as natural or healthy or safe. And the problem with selecting products that smell nice is that within fragrance, there is usually hundreds or thousands of different chemicals inside um, what's used to make fragrance. However, manufacturers, sometimes they just throw the word fragrance into the label without disclosing what's actually inside the fragrance. And these fragrances, like I mentioned, can contain hundreds or thousands of different very harmful ingredients. So the fact that only 20% of Vietnamese consumers select products that are healthy and 66% of them select products that, that smell good is very telling in terms of the kind of education that we need to be um, doing towards Vietnamese populations to educate them about um, the harms of fragrance as well as how to select safer personal care products. Yeah, I find that, you know, really interesting. Um, we've done some work in, in California with fragrance disclosure, and it's really um, appalling, you know, and, and frustrating um, that 
basically industry is allowed to get away with using the word fragrance and using trade secrets to kind of conceal the chemicals that are in their products, um, which not only can cause direct health harms, but also can be extra harmful because of the way they interact with all of the other chemicals that we have in our environment. Have you all been doing any work to move the needle forward in terms of prevention, and I mean like real prevention um, on a policy level. Yeah, so one policy that I want to highlight is um, SB 312, which was passed last year. It's called the Cosmetic Fragrance and Flavor Ingredient Right to Know Act of 2020. And what SB 312 does is it would require companies that sell beauty or personal care products in California to report hazardous fragrance and flavor ingredients in their products to the California Department of Public Health Safe Cosmetics Program. And this information would be made publicly available through their Safe Cosmetics database. And this would be monumental um, because at the workplace, professional salon workers and manicurists are exposed um, to fragrances more than the general population. So having this information available will, you know, this disclosure is going to give both salon workers and consumers the right to the information that they need to know to avoid harmful ingredients in the cosmetic products that they use every day. So yeah, the truth is that there's like no real simple solutions to addressing these issues, which is frustrating um, at times. However, we can turn our knowledge into power and use knowledge to empower. Um, so what are some of the intersecting barriers and issues that you see across different racial groups um, from the things that you've learned in the Capable study? Yeah, so in the Capable study, um, we found that, so I, I mentioned earlier that formaldehyde is something that is commonly found in nail polish products and is extremely toxic. Um, so in recent years, we've made a lot of strides in terms of educating salon workers as well as the general public about the harms of formaldehyde. And we've made progress in encouraging salons to use products that don't contain formaldehyde. However, something that we found in the Capable study is that a lot of the products don't contain formaldehyde anymore. However, they contain what's known as a formaldehyde releaser. So basically like products when they are exposed into a solution or when they're exposed to heat or um, air, they will release formaldehyde. And a lot of these products that have formaldehyde releasers um, were products that are um, they're hair products that are marketed to black women. So when reporting on these findings, we really have to contextualize the usage of these of these products in terms of the social rules and expectations that have been placed on, on these populations. Um, like I mentioned, a lot of the hair products that Black women use, for example, have formaldehyde releasers. So we really have to educate and ask the public why our society has imposed such Eurocentric ideals of professionalism and beauty such that Black women feel the need to routinely put their health at risk by, for example, flat ironing their hair with formaldehyde releasers to be able to gain acceptance and legitimacy and belonging in the workplace. And similarly, like we found that a lot of the, the, the skin products that Asian women use, especially skin lightening products, have mercury in them. So similarly, why has society feel the need for Asian women to put their health at risk by using skin whiteners that have high levels of mercury in them? Thank you so much for joining us today and shedding light on some of the issues that are that exist in the Asian American community and how they pertain and relate to breast cancer. I appreciate having you on the show. Thank you. 
Our final guest today is someone that I have the honor of working with day in and day out, Dr. Crystal Redmond, Executive Director here at Breast Cancer Action. Hey, Crystal, how are you doing today? Hey, Jayla, I'm doing pretty good. Well, welcome on to the podcast. Um, so over the last five months, I've had the honor of seeing you in action here at the org. And although it's probably impossible to capture all of the work that you've done um, in the past and the work that you're currently doing, it would be great to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you bring to Breast Cancer Action. Sure. Uh, well, I'm so happy to be a part of this podcast and really be in collective conversation with our members and listeners and with you. So thank you for inviting me into this space. And um, as Jayla has said, I'm Dr. Crystal Redman. Uh, a lot of people just call me KR. Uh, that's actually a preference of mine. And my pronouns are they and she. And I, I guess a little bit about myself, I, although currently I'm in Atlanta, I've been here for a little over six years now, so I'm based in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm from Los Angeles, California, so a lot of my earlier work has been um, more so in Southern California, and uh, you know, when I left California, it was because I knew that some of the deep work when it comes to organizing and mobilization of Black folks, of queer folks, um, of pregnant folks and, and some of uh, my work at the intersection of public health uh, needed to be in the South. And just because of that, those roots in the South with that history and especially um, with my roots in uh, grassroots organizing for Black liberation and centering that in all that I do in medicine and public health and just all of the work, right? Um, so that's just a bit about my journey and, you know, in, in everything that I do, regardless if it's uh, working on a grassroots level in community or um, as an executive director of an organization or, you know, just in my own political journey has to be centered on the liberation of folks uh, with the furthest relationships to power, uh, folks within my community, BIPOC folks, et cetera, queer folks. So um, that's what I center my work. And I understand that you cannot achieve any form of justice, health justice, liberation, anything, right? Um, unless all folks, but especially the ones who are currently and historically oppressed, have the ability to thrive and not just survive. So that's uh, what has brought me to this work at Breast Cancer Action. One of the things that we talked about with some of the friends and allies and partners that represent and serve uh, marginalized communities that are directly impacted by the issues inherent in the overall system. Um, we're here today, which is great, um, but still bring some anger and sadness that we do have to be having these discussions still. Um, and I wanted to emphasize that this is an abbreviated discussion and that there are many more inequities for people who identify with different racial, ethnic, and cultural identities that lead to disparities in health outcomes, including breast cancer. Um, for example, like when it comes to breast cancer in indigenous communities, although some studies have shown increased risk among women, um, from Southern Plains and Oklahoma. There's limited data um, that looks at risk by tribe or region. And all of that to say is, you know, breast cancer has historically been known to be a white woman's disease. And it's important to keep in mind that breast cancer may look differently for each individual who has most likely multiple 
identities as well. And by shedding light on the experiences of Black, Hispanic, and Asian communities like we've done today, um, we don't wish to erase the experiences of folks not mentioned, but more so open the conversation of how differently this disease can be navigated for everyone that's impacted. Um, so thanks for touching on that. KR. Um, a common theme that emerged from today's conversations uh, were the failures of our healthcare systems to meet the needs of people of color. So Breast Cancer Action, I've said this over and over again, um, provides unbiased resources to help people gather information, such as the harms and benefits associated with things such as screening or different breast cancer therapies, um, so that people can make informed decisions about their care. Um, in doing this, we hope that these resources will make dealing with healthcare providers and hospitals less intimidating, but we also know that this may look differently if you have um, confounding identities. So I'd love for you to speak about centering communities of color when it comes to the care that they may need. Yes, of course. So with uh, BIPOC communities, Black, Indigenous, people of color, and um, as you mentioned, Jayla, this is not to um, erase the experiences of other folks that don't identify within BIPOC communities, but to truly, as I said in the introduction, uh, to center the folks with that reside within deeper within the margins um, and have the furthest relationships to power. And um, that systemic oppression and racism directly affect. Uh, so uh, this conversation, as you said, is a piece of the conversation, um, but it's, it's an important piece of the conversation, especially as we navigate uh, these systems, as BIPOC folks navigate these systems as part of their day-to-day -day lives. So, you know, at Breast Cancer Action, we essentially believe that people should have access to the best available information and about how to navigate their care and how BIPOC folks need to be at the table in that discussion around their care and formulating real plans for what decisions around breast cancer may look like for them. So let's dissect that. When I say that um, folks should have, BIPOC folks should have access to care, that means equitable care, that there should not be systemic barriers or any form of a barrier uh, especially rooted in oppression and racism that affects someone's ability to access care. And that means having coverage, that means um, your, uh, where you reside, making sure you have um, actually physical accessibility to providers, care and treatment, that uh, you have the means of getting to the care, right? Uh, and then once you're able to get there and let's say you have insurance, that you're equitably being cared for by a provider, that that provider and that system, um, healthcare system providing care looks at you not through the lens of bias and the things that they have to kind of dismantle um, as a result of working in a systemic uh, structure rooted in racism and oppression, but they look at you knowing that you are the patient and we trust you as the subject matter expert of your life in your body. And providers are a part, a, a crucial part of our treatment team and a thought partner and a resource and have all of that acquired um, skill set in being trained up on this specific area. And uh, we need providers as part of that team, but that does not reduce the power of the individual. And um, that's something that we need to center on as we begin these deep conversations and having these um, honest conversations and, and, and discussions around what systemic inequities, what oppression looks like, 
and truly what are the root causes and barriers of getting to health justice? Yes, I love that. And I want to come back to your point of, you know, kind of disruption and and what that means and shaking things up. And before going into that, I know you talked a lot about some of the inequities. Um, Can you speak to how these inequities have contributed to breast cancer disparities and and some of the things that um, have stuck out to you over your past few months here at Breast Cancer Action as alarming in terms of the gaping disparities that exist? Yeah, I I think, uh, you know, it kind of boils down to um, data and facts, right? Uh, Part of my uh, first few months at Breast Cancer Action is having these conversations around centering lived experiences and stories as facts. You know, sometimes we think of science and information and data as just one form, uh, scientific journals and what's been published and et cetera. And what's equally as important and should carry as much power and weight is um, someone's lived experience, right? Because essentially that's qualitative data um, too as well. Um, But just to give some data points here, uh, we know breast cancer risk varies across different racial, ethnic, and social economic groups. And what that may look like, for instance, some simple data is that U.S.-born Asian Americans have a more than 50% higher risk of developing breast cancer than those who have immigrated. Uh, We also know that lower-income Latinx women are more likely to be diagnosed with aggressive triple-negative breast cancers. And also, Black women are twice as likely as white women to be diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer, a more aggressive subtype of this disease. So historically, breast cancer mortality rates have been higher for Black women, about 31% or so, than any other U.S. racial or ethnic group. So that's a fact, right? We also know that while Black women's incidence rates for breast cancer once were lower than white women in recent years, Black women's incidence rates, about 12%, is similar now to white women, which is about 13%. So not far behind from that are AAPI communities and Latinx Native communities. So those are a few different disparities, and we can even go further. You know, Black women are more likely to be diagnosed at a younger age and at a later stage and have more aggressive forms of the disease, as well as Black women are 40% more likely to die from breast cancer than white women. Um, So not only, you know, all these other facts, but we're at an increased rate of just being like dying from this disease. And then finally, Black women experience even worse breast cancer mortality ratios over 60% in states like Louisiana, Mississippi, Wisconsin, and New Mexico. Um, And, you know, quite interesting to me is that now that I am in the South and I've been here for uh, about six years or so, I see um, greater health disparities or gaps within healthcare outcomes with Black folks um, specifically in the South, right? And it, it causes me to think about what that history is and what reality is here um, in the South, as well as throughout the U.S. and honestly, um, just uh, globally. But if we, if we take some of these regions that I just named, these rates are specifically higher in like the Southeast areas. And it's not just, you know, an outlier data point there. Um, we know that with history in the South of being um, where, uh, you know, slavery and civil rights and uh, oppression and, you know, I say weathering and trauma that is um, bears on the backs of black and brown folks throughout 
centuries and generations and such, and how that directly affects our healthcare outcomes, including our risk of um, getting um, uh, breast cancer and dying from it. Yeah, place matters. <laughs> that is for sure. Um, and, you know, I think as a community of breast cancer activists, um, there's an importance of supporting movements that address the complex and overlapping differences of these social justice issues and, and how they all work together. Um, so in closing, I would love if you have a call to action for the people and followers um, and community of Breast Cancer Action um, to kind of say what we need to do um, as a community, as individuals to move this work forward. Yeah, um, I, I have a few ideas. So I think that as activists, as um, organizers, as organizations and institutions that um, I want to believe center that work and what they do. I think very often we hear, um, you know, movement terms and phrases, um, you know, for instance, health justice, social justice, environmental justice, all of these terms, right? And we need to figure out what that means. When we say health justice, when we say social justice, um, when we say environmental justice, all that, what does that truly mean? Because it means different things to everyone, right? But the the true definition of what it means is centering those, as I said, who reside deep within the margins, because if we don't center those folks, we'll never be able to achieve health justice, social justice, environmental justice, all the justices, right? And then when you think about what that really means, uh, it's really doing the work, as I said, to center those folks, because systemic oppression is not just something that just shows up and goes away. This is something that's deeply rooted within all systems, you know, the healthcare system, education system, uh, prison industrial complex and violence and how people are unable to survive. And if people are being um, harmed and hurt and are unable to survive daily, even by walking out of their door, right? Um, then how do we even get to the cause of, or not even the cause, but how do we even get to address uh, systemic barriers or um, truly getting to health justice and truly getting um, to a place where people are not only able to live, but they're able to survive and thrive in that. So, um, you know, in looking at when I say dismantling systems of oppression as a solution is because we know, you know, our current systems across the board are not working. And actually, I'm sorry, they are very much working. They're working because they were built specifically um, to function against folks within the furthest proximities to power, um, BIPOC folks, Black folks, et cetera, right? Like these systems were created to function against those folks, our folks. And um, so, so they, they essentially are working, right? But when we think about our goal for health justice, then we have to be bold enough to envision how can we reshape and redesign systems that actually work for us, that are in place so that people can thrive, survive, and achieve full health justice and liberation and freedom, right? And um, it is a bold move to ask us to not go with what is the norm and deal with and navigate things that just do not help, right? And to really think about how we can build collective power and strategy to getting to a better place where, you know, we have equitable access to care. 
Um, so, you know, a part of that strategy, as I said, is collective power. I am speaking specifically to allies, right? That um, for a long time, when you think about grassroots mobilizing mobilization in a way to disrupt systems of oppression, that is rooted in um, black and brown liberation, indigenous liberation. So I'm not I'm not calling for folks who have historically been on the ground together. I am calling for allies, for uh, folks who have uh, those privileges and um, are typically centered in power to really activate your collective community and allyship and begin to do that deep work of gathering information and education and some political, when I say education, I mean political education as to um, the lived experiences of folks um, that reside within those margins, right? And support, ask where you can show up, how you can um, engage in direct action, um, how you can speak to your legislators, folks who are decision makers within healthcare systems, policymakers within within institutions and administrations, and really galvanize folks, right? Because there is power in collective number. And uh, I would say we need people to be ready to join us as we become bolder around these issues. You know, Breast Cancer Action has always been a very bold organization and, you know, has been okay with going against the grain. And, you know, something that I said, we had our 17th annual Lulin um, benefit last night. And one thing I said was, it's okay to be uncomfortable. You know, this work is intended to be uncomfortable. So uh, especially for folks who don't have these identities, right? Um, So it is okay to be uncomfortable because if you are positioning um, the disruption and dismantling of systems that are rooted in folks' harm and hurt and perpetuate that, um, and continue to live within those disparities. If you're positioning the disruption of that over your comfort, then you are headed in the right direction. So um, that's one thing I just want to leave with folks as breast cancer action continues to be bolder, if that's a word, and um, and badder uh, when it comes to um, really uplifting these issues and centering this lens as we truly Um, are working to achieve health justice for all folks at risk of and living with breast cancer. I love that, KR, and has been, you know, one of the main reasons that I'm so tied to this organization. Um, I think throughout this podcast, there have been many gems dropped. (laughs) That is my favorite thing to say. So thank you so much, Crystal, for bringing it all home for us. Um, Lucky for me, I have the pleasure of being in these conversations day in and day out. Um, So all of the listeners, I invite you to join us in this movement. Um, You can visit our website, www.bcaction.org to learn more on how to take action and engage with us further. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. All of our podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Give us a five-star review and be sure to subscribe. We want to hear from you. Tell us your stories. Share your questions. Let us know who you want to hear from and who we should invite as a guest on the show. You can share your ideas by emailing info at bcaction.org or reaching out on Facebook or Twitter. While you're there, sign up for the emails to get the latest on all the rest of Breast Cancer Action's work. 
And if you value what you heard today, please support our work by donating on our website, bcaction.org, because together we can do something besides worry.